Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. Today is my intention to interview Karen Nicolau. Now, Karen has done a number of different, very interesting things. She doesn't think they're interesting. And when she sent me the list, she said, oh, these are interesting enough. They are absolutely fantastic. This is XJob Downloaded, and we are going to take this next hour or so to find out all about Karen. Karen, thank you so much for hosting me here today. Welcome. And thank you for giving me the equipment to do it because I'd made a bit of a mess of it, to be fair, and um, you directed me properly. It was like being at home, to be honest with you. <laughs> Um, Karen, what's your background? Um, I'll try and do it briefly. No, 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 no. Listen, we don't do brief. Don't do brief. Okay. So um, I was born to a Chinese man from a tiny village in China uh, who came to the UK in the 50s, I think it was, early 50s, because England needed workforce. Yeah. So he came over with his brother. He's a Kung Fu master. And... uh, because of the uh, amount of triad that are very active or were active in Chinatown, he decided not to do that. And he got a job in a restaurant. He was a very good chef. So he brought his brother over and they all came over and this was the 50s and he ended up settling in Cheltenham. He was a chef in Chinatown in London for a long time. He met my mother, um, whose descent we're unsure of. She's not alive. She died very early, but Greek predominantly. Right. Um, they had a very, very dysfunctional marriage, as you can imagine. Didn't speak the language very well. They were both quite good-looking people, and we can only ever put our finger on that. <laughs> we really can. We look at them and think, how? But between them, they had six children. Um, have, my father had already been tr- betrothed to somebody in China, and he'd got three sons when he was 16, so they were tiny little boys, wow. and he came to England. And he marries my mother, and he has another five children, which are us. And then they, when I was about four, you know, a little bit older, I was five, uh, they parted company. Right. And initially we were with my mother um, and my father went back to Hong Kong and he was there for a little while. My mother, bless her soul, she's, I say that, I don't really know her that well, um, was very dysfunctional. When I think about it now, I think she may have had bipolar or something like that. Yeah. Decided to just up and leave one day, and all five of us just stayed in the home. Wow. And what were the age ranges at that point? Uh, I was six, I think. Uh, my memories are about that age, but my older sister was about 13. or No, she was probably about 11 or 12. Right. So she hid us, because my mum just disappeared. My dad didn't know about it. My mum just disappeared. She'd turn up every now and then to make sure there was food in the house, and then she'd disappear again. Um, so as a subsequent of her behaviour and my older sister trying to hide us, because we're talking 70s now, um, late 60s, if you like, my older sister talks about it now and she'll say, I didn't want social services to take us. No. So she hid us. 
So if you imagine an 11, 12-year-old. Wow. So she looks after us, and we're, we're very, very close to each other, even now. Even now, yeah. And I think it's because we formed this bond where we looked after each other. Um, so eventually social services did turn up because she was gone for about two weeks. Bearing in mind the youngest was probably about three. Um, contacted my father, who had no idea what was going on, and as a result of that behaviour, he took us and he took all of us. And, and she, where were you so living she, then? What, what part of the country? I was actually born in Colchester. Oh, were you? Yeah, so um, he lived in Cheltenham, so he turned up, and at the time they said to him, you can't be a single man and look after five children, um, or three, because two of them were a bit older and they wanted to stay put. So he said, I'll go back to China and find a wife then, and that's exactly what we did. So he went back to China found a, an arranged marriage with a Chinese lady who didn't speak a word of English, came back. He was living, he had a restaurant by then, and he'd bought a restaurant and he'd set it up because in Cheltenham, there were, at the time, there were probably about five or six Chinese takeaways all belonging to relatives of mine, my dad, his brother, his sister, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then my dad came along and found out what was happening. He'd gone and got this wife that married her, came back to England, back into the restaurant, and he turned up in Colchester, picked us all up, and off we went. And that's where we stayed. Incredible. So we grew up in a restaurant um, in a Chinese culture. We learnt the language because there was no other way to communicate with his wife. Um, so while we were at home, it was really strange because we never used knife and fork until we went to school. We never did anything English, Western. if you like, yeah. until we went to school. Um, my dad's English was good, but not, not it was broken. Yeah. So we communicated with him in a, in a dialect called Hakar, which is very used in, in um, the new territories of Hong Kong. Right. It's dying a little bit now because it's not used so much, but Cantonese and Mandarin. But my father spoke all dialects. So. Right. And he was a very proud man, have to say. So we always say that we were brought up by a man. Yeah. Hence, I think I got my character from there because right. he brought us up to think you don't take any crap from anyone. No. He was a master of his of Kung Fu, very well known in Hong Kong for being the master of that particular. Yeah. And he brought us up and he used to say, and I remember as a kid because I was quite shy as a kid, believe it or not, and I was small. I was prematurely born, so... I was three pounds, and so I never grew very much until I left school, and all my sisters towered over me, and they were real hefty, as in don't take any crap from anyone. And I remember a girl having me up against the wall in a classroom once with a metre ruler on my chin, <laughs> and I'm standing there, and she's calling me names. And my younger sister walks past the classroom, double takes, and comes in and just whops her backside. And I, I was quite a wimp then. I was just afraid. Oh, you've I was changed. very quiet. I know. <laughs> and I don't remember the transition, but I was very scared of things. And my father was pat her on the back. She was good. He she'd come home every day and say, You got any bruises? He'd say to her. Because she's getting fights all the time. And he used to say to us, You don't start fights, but what you do do is you don't let anyone hit you. Yeah. Because we grew up being called names. So we we go to school and we go through school and he is very strict. We're girls. I've got because of your Chinese heritage. Yeah. yeah. We, we're not allowed out. So we come home from school. We run the restaurant with him. We've all got our chores and that's it. We don't go to night. The first nightclub I ever went to was with my husband. Um, wow. And I was 19. 
So, you know, it's we weren't allowed out of our house, as in you don't have boyfriends. You don't bring boyfriends home to meet your father unless you're marrying him. Yeah. And you were never going to meet anyone anyway. Brother was different. You know, my father used to say to my brother, do what we want, basically, just be careful, and that was it. Yeah. But it was normal to us. And I read a book recently called Chinglish, and it's to do with... I could have read my life in that book because it was Chinese children being brought up in England in restaurants. Right. And how we all felt about it. I'm going to read that book. It is funny as hell. Yeah, I I relate to every word she says. Anyway, so, you know, my friends go, you come out tonight now I've got to go to the restaurant and peel some onions. You know, that was our norm. Yeah, of course. Um, On the other hand, he was strong. He provided for us. In those days, we sort of had a bit of money because he had a restaurant. So yeah. me and my sister, we joke about it now, but we wanted a new coat for school and he he only ever bought his things from Marks and Spencers. We wanted a bloody parka with fur around it and we get this hundred quid cashmere coat. And it's like, oh, God, but it's smart, you know, yeah, it's yeah. quality. Yeah. Um, so we, we did see our mother briefly and in the summer holidays we would come back to Colchester for a few weeks because that was allowed, and we'd stay with her. And we'd at that age, we didn't want to go back to live with my dad because we didn't really get on with his wife. But when I think about her, she was a bit of an ogre. However, all of a sudden, she's got these kids sprung on her, oh, and they're not word. hers, yeah. right? So anyone would be the same. Anyway, so we come back and we say to her, can we stay, can we stay? Yep, you're staying, you're not going back. And we were overjoyed. And then within 24 hours, she's changed her mind and he'd come and pick us up. Mm. And when I think about the trauma he went through, because he just wanted us to have a good life, and his way of good life meant you were provided for, you were educated, you, you know, and you stayed out of trouble and all that sort of thing. It would have been very different, I think, had we had not been taken by him. Yeah. I don't know. And I know you, you adored your dad. I mean, I remember having conversations before about him when we worked together. And he was a massive influence on your life and your mm. work ethic. Mm. Chinese people as a whole work really hard. Mm. And, yeah, he did instill that on all of us, me and my siblings. They Most of them run their own businesses now yeah. and, they, you know, they, they have a work ethic. They're always got – even the ones that don't, they're there if you want them to help and their bosses love them because yeah. they will work. They're not clock watchers. You no. know, it's, it's not how you work. Um. And he brought us up like that. But he he was really... um, I got into trouble with him a little bit because I was a bit of a rebel. As in, I was very sporty. I was was this rake of a child that just didn't keep still. I was always into something where my sisters weren't. And... um, and I was a little bit of the odd one out, really. I was... He didn't like that rebellion in me. (laughs) And and in those days, you'd get the strap across the back of your leg. And that happened more than often. And we say now, God, he... God, so Imagine now. Can you imagine? And we'd see him, we think, oh, God, we're going to get... I mean, when I was in school, you got the canes. Yeah, that's right. So he was very... Um, his brothers and... Um, he's had three brothers... Uh, sorry, two brothers and a sister, and all their children are overachievers, all very successful to this day. They've all done really, really well. And we we did okay, but we did okay, not academically. We did it through business. Yeah. And I think... We put it down to our home was a little bit broken. They had mum and dad. You didn't didn't. have that stability. We didn't. Um, So we put it like that. So then I got to about um, 16, 17, and um, Chinese people are gamblers. Yeah, they are. We're now gamblers. 
So every weekend it wasn't unusual to follow him down to the casino and we'd sit in the casino in Bristol and eat steak and chips while he gambled and then we'd drive back at three in the morning. That was normal. Um, and I was in there one day and I was approached by the organisers of this Miss Cafe Pacific that I'd, I'd let you know all about. I was 17 at the time. And they said, would you represent Bristol? And I said, no. I was a bit shy. My Cafe sister, Pacific are a huge airline, huge, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> and in those days, they, you had to be Chinese of some sort. You could be mixed, but yeah. you had to be Chinese. And um, I said, no, 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 that's not for me. And my sister Susan said, yes, she will. <laughs> Push me forward. So off I went um, and I did the heat in Bristol. And, uh, and I won that heat. And then the, the final was the UK. So I thought, oh, I don't want to do this. And the final was in Odeon Cinema, Leicester Square. And the prize was, in those days, £5,000. Wow. a lot of money, right? Yeah. And, uh, and two, you were in two, the centre of Chinatown there yeah. as well, aren't you? So. And two first-class tickets to Hong Kong. So I went along and I'd got my outfit. I'd bought my swimming costume. You had to do a bloody swimming costume. <laughs> so I bought this navy blue thing from Marks and Spencers. I'll never forget it. It was very modest. And I had an evening dress, so you had to do those two things. And all these other girls that were in this were in really beautiful, sexy swimwear, flowers in their hair, and they really knew about their sexuality. I didn't, and I was this shy, goofy kid, really. Anyway, and I won that. My dad didn't come to that, actually. Did he, he knew you were taking part? He knew I was taking part, and he said, uh, you're not going to win that. This is real Chinese mentality. You're not going to win that. And I, he said, you know, go and do what you want to do, but you're not going to win it. So off I go, and um, I can hear my sisters in the crowd screaming because they, they announced the winner in Chinese, obviously, and it, the audience all full of China. I'm sitting out the back with my Parker coat on, zipped up to the thing so you can only see my eyes, not expecting to go any further, and then they called me out. I think part of it was when Not we went Parker, out... Not in your Parker, though. You didn't come out in your Parker, did you? No. <laughs> but I lost my voice a little bit because right. I was so cold. But when I'd gone out, they asked you questions like, what do you do with your money? And, and I think because at the time I spoke quite fluent Hagar and they were very surprised knowing I was only mixed Chinese because it's a dialect that a lot of people don't speak. Right. And it's a, there's a bit snobbery. Um, and there's a lot... In that area, there's a lot of Hagar people. Um, yeah, so I... I and the, the organisers nudging me and saying, it's you, it's you. So I thought, well, OK, I got my parka coat off and went out there. So, yeah, so I was crowned Miss Cathy Pacific and I phoned my dad. He was asleep. I thought, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him. Um, he was... I, so I had to tell him I was his accountant, otherwise he wouldn't have got out of bed because, you know, restaurants don't close till two in the morning and it, this was, like, late at night the next day and so he got out and I said oh I've, I've won and it, there was no reaction really how funny um and then myself and my sister um went to Hong Kong and this is 1984 so we didn't have mobile phones it's not as no, if you could phone him no. on the mobile drop him a text a uh, whatsapp anything like that he was very um you know I broke my leg once when I was 15 yeah could it would have been you wouldn't it that was his attitude yeah. I've I've um disturbed his sleep because he's got to come pick me up from school and I was more worried about that. <laughs> and I've got a plaster on my leg. But anyway, so we went to Hong Kong and he was quite happy about that because he was very anti-UK at the time. 
as a lot of people are when they come here, because they're almost begrudging their homeland, but he never went back for 15 years. And so he was happy I was going there. Mm. So I went there and I went to the village, and we're talking a village four miles from the border of China, and I remember walking down the road, to, and at the time there was gates where beyond the gates is communist China. Hong Kong this time belongs to the UK yeah. uh, colony. So I walk up to the gate and I'm looking through the gate and they're marching, you know, with their green suits and the red star. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a communist. He loved all that. We learnt the Chinese national anthem when we were seven. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Mao Zedong. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, t- he loved Mao Zedong. Um, so and I thought, this is surreal. They were all with their guns and green outfits and the red star. And then the village was, you know, four miles from that. So I bummed about there for four, five, six months. Came back and I I spoke really fluent um, Chinese then because nobody in the village spoke English. They they go, they call it English or they called me. Here's the ghost girl because they've got a name for Western people. They call them ghosts because they're. It's pale. Pale, yeah. And it's not meant to be offensive. It's no, just, no. It's like, here comes the ghost girl, and they considered that to be me. Um, very strange um, feeling of not belonging to either side. We all grew up with that. Yeah. Although it was probably 70-30. We always felt Chinese because of our upbringing. Um, and then there was a little part of us that thought, hold on a minute, we have got a mixed parent here, but we just... Our culture was just that. Yeah. And had your mum passed by this time? Or? She, no, she she did die at the age of 52. Right. Um, and she was a very, she was a strange character. We only knew her, her age when she died. Wow. She was very secretive. She was she was a very kind woman. Like we'd, we'd come home sometime and go, Who, who's that? She goes, oh, they were waiting at the bus stop. It was raining. All right. <laughs> you know, and she'd say, well, you wouldn't like to be standing in the bus stop while it's raining, would you? She was a, she was a very eccentric character. So uh, anyway, so we were in Hong Kong, and I stayed there, and my and I was bumming about. I was seventeen, and my sister went and got a job, and my sister who went with me never came back. She stayed there all her life, and she worked there for twenty years, married there, had children. She's eventually come back now because she's got a business in the UK, but. She sent me home. <laughs> I really, literally was hanging around the village, enjoying life, to be honest, and I didn't want to come back to England. It's my favourite place in the world. Um, but I did. Came back and then um, it's where I met my first husband when I came back. He was Greek Cypriot. Um, we, I moved with him to London and that caused a little bit of tension with my father. Yeah, of course. Because he wanted us to marry Chinese men. Um, although he married a Greek lady. Um, and so he was a shipbroker, my first husband, and he worked in the stock exchange in those days, which was the 80s in London. Right. Uh, we moved all around London, North London, and I spent a lot of time in the Greek culture and community, learnt to speak the language a little bit to, so I could communicate because we ended up getting married. Um, and I was only 19. With, and it wasn't unusual in the 80s, was it, to get married no. at 19? Um, so I learnt the language so I could speak to my mother-in-law. And then we went through a really horrible patch in our marriage. Our son was um, about five or six, five. And unfortunately, my first husband got killed tragically in a car crash. Yeah. Um, I joined the job by then. So I joined the job 
And in those days, you didn't really get a lot of um, flexibility. You didn't get much help. No, there was no there was no flexibility. There was no cognizance of the fact that you were a parent, a mother. <coughs> no, um, even for for dads as well. You know the the, the equality issues. It, it was there was there was nothing there that would support family life. Mm. You just got on with it. Yeah. So what year was it that you joined the job? Ninety four. Ninety four. Uh, Eighty nine. Yes. Yeah, so my son was five. Um, and at first, I'd been in the job a couple of years. And, um, yeah, there was no flexibility. And I remember at the time, the chief constable at the time was really strict and nobody liked him very much. <laughs> oh, they didn't. He was a bugger. <laughs> anyway, and I, it, I was very focused on, you know, I joined the police really fluke. I sat in a bar one day because I worked in the city in London. I was bored out my brain. In fact, I worked for a set of receivers who, and I was a PA to this boss. And I remember him buying a crash helmet from um, one of the racing drivers, famous racing driver, the one who got a broken leg, I can't even remember his name now. Um, and he brought this crash helmet and it had been signed and he brought it back to the office and he was showing us all and look at this, da 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 um, And the, the signature came off. He paid £8,000 for it. Oh, my God. So he sent me to the, one of the hotels in London to get it re-signed by this racing driver. And I'm young, I'm 18 or something. So I go along and the Dorchester... Meet the racing driver. He signs it again and says, tell your boss not to keep handling it around. And that was my sort of life. And he asked me to, at lunchtime to go and get him some, a, a carton of orange juice. So I went and got it, come back, put it on his desk, went back to my desk, carried on working. About three hours later, he goes, I'm so thirsty. I said, I bought you a carton of orange juice. And this is where my head began to think, I'm not putting up with your crap. And I said, there is. He said, yes, but you didn't give me scissors to open it. Oh, my life. And I looked at him, and I know I've got a look on my face that many of my colleagues go, yeah, it's there, Karen. I went, right, okay. I thought, I can't do this anymore. I came from my a father that taught us how to be very independent and not expect that from people. Sat in a bar, and in the newspaper, this big... If, I don't know if you remember years ago, it used to be, could you? Yeah, could you? Could you? And I thought, yeah. And I literally filled it out there in the bar, cut it out, put it in an envelope and stuck it in the post box. I had no desire to be a copper. It wasn't something I'd... I'm Juliet Bravo, used to watch that. <laughs> and I, you know, I never, ever mentioned it. And then um, I got a reply and said, can you come and take some tests? I thought, okay, I'm going along to this. But the minute I stepped into that environment, I felt I'd found my vocation. Yeah. I really did. I belonged. I just loved everything about it. Yeah. And in those days, you had to do a dictation test. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And there was about 55 of us, and they'd already told us we've had 360 whatever applications, 3,600 applications. There's 53 jobs. I thought, God's sake. Or 23 jobs it was at the time. So I sit in there and we're doing this dictation. Somebody stands at the front, they read out a passage, you've got to scribble it down and then you get half an hour to punctuate it and da-da-da. And I sat there all nervous and we've done that. And they said, right, we're going to call these people out and when we call your name out, you go through that door and you stand in there. And there was nine of us. And in my head I thought, oh, my God, Karen, you've bloody failed. You're one of these nine. But we weren't. We were the only nine that got it right. And it was crazy. Wow. That's changed, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I went through all the tests and the med, and, and I just kept getting through, and I thought, this is for me. 
And then I ended up in Shotley for where the training thing was. Yeah. I think that's where my uh, reputation for being, because I think I've got a bit of reputation, of being a little bit intimidating. I thought, what, me? I'm five foot four. No nonsense, so there's no... But I can't hold things in. I grew up being... I sat in a classroom, 23 of us, and I remember we were discussing forms, and I think this was the first thing where people thought, oh. And one of the girls in there said, yeah, but you know what? Foreigners come to our country, and they can't fill these forms out. Like, they come from Spain. And I couldn't even hold... It, it slipped out. There was no filter. And I said... Do you speak Spanish then? I was angry. Yeah, sure. No. I went, well, what are you talking about then? Yeah. I'd got I'd had a different life. I really had. Well you you were already speaking um a number of different languages and Yeah, it was um it was the expectation of why do you think people have got to speak your language? Yes, I, I you know, we all go to countries and we respect other people's cultures. That's what it's about. Yeah. But So it sort of started from there. And I've never, ever been one of these people that, you know, I'm going to trip people up. And once I got into the police, I, I then a couple of years in, my husband had, uh, died and I took about six months out to look after my son because I needed to do that. Um, and then I went back because I was climbing the walls. And I remember welfare coming around and saying to me, are you all right? I said, not really. My son's distraught, I'm distraught. And she said to me, well, you're mourning for two people, so you'll be fine. And that was the only contact I had. <laughs> and I never had, which I think they have now, I never had any, I had to actually take a career break. Yeah. And I thought, you should have really given me time off because I'd been back type of thing. But, so um, and what year was this? I mean... Uh, uh, he, it was about... 96. Right. And where, where like were that. you stationed then? Were you? Um, I was in Braintree. Braintree, yeah. A Braintree division. And I was a uniform officer. Yeah. And I was a very, um, I do it today. I don't like being told off for something that I know I've done wrong. That you know you've done wrong. Yes. You don't need to be reminded of it. So I won't do it. Do you know, if somebody says to me, um, oh, just chuck that over there, nobody will notice. Oh, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm exactly the same. I can't do something no. that I know is wrong, wrong. No. and I'm going to get told off for it. So th that was the same with work. I can do things wrong on my own volition, but yeah. I'm not going to be told that, oh, that's all right, cut the corner, you'll be... Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't do that. And again, that's come from my father, I think. Yeah. He couldn't bear that. You, you weren't allowed to tell lies. No. Um, so I was stationed at Braintree, and that was, that was tough because I was now a single parent and clock-watching... And when I was in work and I'd give 150%. But when it got to, if I was off at five, I had to go at five. I've got a yeah, young boy standing at the school gate. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I was paying for a childminder, which a very good childminder, I have to say, that took half my wages, to be honest. Mm. Um, but um, I just thought, you know, I'm going to do this for 10 years. I'll give it 10 years of my life and then I'll have to find something else to do, which didn't happen. Because once I was in, I was in and I loved it and I would do it all over again. Yeah. Um, there were moments where I thought, do something else within. I stayed within uniform, but I knew I wanted to become a DC very early on. Yeah. And I thought about this yesterday, actually. I remember just hanging around the CID office all the time. And if something came in, you know, a rape or something that required any length of investigation, I'd volunteer afterward. I'll go. They go, 
what to take statements. I'll go take statements. I just wanted to build up this. And we were in the new police station then. No, we were. Yes, yes, yeah, we were. Yeah, yes, yeah, we yeah. were. In, in the, the avenue. Yeah, yeah, and I can't remember the DCI's name now. Dave. Um, Very old. Ninety six was this? Was this? Yeah, before, and he used to walk round in his slippers before Apache um, or after Apache. Because there was a fruit machine in the canteen where they all used to. Hang oh, you're out. thinking of Dave Bailey? Yes, Dave yeah, Bailey. Dave Bailey. He was the DCI, and he called me in, and I eventually said, "I want to come on your team." And he said, you, "Come on, then." I'd got about. I'd only done about eighteen months then. Yeah. Um, he called me in his office one day, and he said, "I want to show you my wage slips." He always did this, I think. So I'll go, okay, because it's my first ever wage slip. He showed me it. I kept it. And he had his slippers on. Very, he was a character and a half, wasn't he? He was a character. And he goes, you screwed my desk yet, girl? I said, and I looked at him and thought, "Mm, uh, what do you mean? He goes, we ought to, because just so you know, I screw all your desks. Yeah. So so if you don't want me to see nothing, don't keep it in there, he said. I'll never forget that. And I said, okay, then thank you, sir. And off I went. And I never, that was it. I stayed on um, CRD from that. And I had an attachment and I loved it. And then obviously I had to take the exams afterwards. Um, And so really I moved around the county, north of the county doing that, which I absolutely loved. Mm. I really loved that. It is what I wanted in my brain as well. Like, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I actually like walking Bobby on the beach. Yeah. Loved stopping talking to people and chatting and That's loved all do. that. Yeah. And the community, you know, getting to know them. And But my collar number when I first joined was my date of birth, which is 1966. And that number yeah, I remember it. followed me. I'd get complaints. I weren't even there. I was off duty there in 1966. And when I first joined the police, it opened me. I had not been called a chink for 20 years. I got called that in school. Hence, we'd fight all the time. Yeah. And then I got called it by a member of public, which really took me back. I thought, oh, what? A grown-up calling me that? So that that happened quite a lot, actually. I, I'd got called all sorts of things. And I thought, how strange. I found that really strange. Yeah. Um, people were afraid of it, though. Other colleagues, they were afraid. And I said, you've got to react to this. Don't, you know. I remember being in custody one day and uh, this girl needed search and I happened to be the only female in the building and I don't know what it is the police has built something in me perhaps my father built something where I'm not really afraid of females at all um can you search this girl she was drunk and, and she was handcuffed and she I come down the stairs and she goes uh, ugh, and there was two male officers there and the sergeant and she said oh you've brought the chink down have you straight away so I said nothing my face stayed straight and uh I'm itching to punch her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she's got these handcuffs on. She then goes into a barrage of insults. You're just a chink. You're a foreigner. Oh, what are you, the token of this station? And da 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 da. And it went on and on. And I look at the sergeant who's saying nothing. And I said to him, I hope you're writing this all down. I said, right, can you? And I looked at the two male officers and they're a bit shy about getting near her because she's quite all over the place. So... Um, you're going to be searched. And that's all I said to her. You're effing not searching me. I, I said, I didn't even say anything. I didn't get into an argument with her. I put my gloves on, went over to her, and I got her up against the custody desk, patted her down, and she's kicking and screaming and spitting. And then she puts her fingers in her mouth and, and pulls her rings off. 
and they go down her throat. So she's now choking. I thought, I'll give it a few minutes. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> so I got a hold of her. We get the rings out. She go, and I go, can you take her handcuffs off? Because we're going to get into a bit of a rumble tumble here. So they take her hands out and she, she's not as strong as me. She's bigger than me, but she's not as strong as me. And I've got a few things I've learned in the police to help out, I suppose. She, you're a strong chink. Um, for, a, a, for a woman or something. And I then got her on the floor and these male officers are still watching, watching me you. because they're afraid to touch her. And those things I struggled with a little bit. Yeah. I said, look, it's not, got nothing to do with anything. I'm here, you're here, you need to. But I didn't need their help in the end. But I, she was put in a cell. Next day... I'm sitting outside the police station and she comes home and asks me for a light. She's sober now. So I always put it down to that. Yeah. She's drunk. But uh, having said that, things have come out of her mouth that shouldn't have come and obviously it came out in court and stuff. But And I got a lot of that. I got a lot of, um, oh, just when you were upsetting people, they would say that. How did you find the humour in the police station? I mean, we, we talk about banter. And some of it, and I, I will tell you now, I remember someone shouting out, anybody else want a chinky? And I remember you challenging them at the time. Yeah. Um, but we didn't know then that that was offensive to you. We didn't understand the connotations of what we were actually saying. I think mm. probably Barry Johnson, bless his soul. But um, we didn't understand why that was offensive. But how was, how was it, as a Chinese woman working in a predominantly heterosexual white environment. How was that for you? Um, 98% of the time, fine. Um, racism can be um, really subtle. And that's why I always... But I'm also not afraid to say things. And if I offend somebody, they'll tell me. Um, you're right. Somebody, they'd always say, oh, we're going for a chinky. Because that's what they've been brought up to. Yeah. to think. And I'd always correct them. Always correct yeah. them. And that's enough for me. Because they didn't know about it, and they now do, so... Can you explain? Because there's a lot of people who will be listening to this. Why, yeah. is, why is that term offensive? Um, it's all to do with the Chin Keys, C-H-I-N-K-E-W-E, government, what? that was years ago. Do you remember Water Margin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With the ponytails. Yeah. They were a little bit, little bit like Nazis. Right, So it's okay. the same sort of thing, um, the equivalent of. Oh, OK. Um, and so Chinese people are very offended by it. Yeah. And they weren't nice people. No. And we got called, we got, you know, I lived in Chinese takeaway all my life and we got insulted all the time and watching my mm. father use his skills outside the restaurant and things like that. And we grew up being called names and chased around the playground and all the rest of it. And we'd end up in fights all the time. And in fact, and I'm going off, but my niece, who's now 30, she's a virologist, she came to England when she was seven. And I know I'm not on camera, but... She was in the park with my son and her brother and some, some of the boys there got their eyes and made slanty eyes. And she didn't get it. She did not know what they were doing. No. Because she'd never seen that before. No. They were making these noises and going like this with their eyes. And she came home and my, of course, my son got into a fight over it. And when she came home, she was six and she told her mum, Alex got into a fight, mummy, because the boys at and they were calling, they were saying chinky and they were putting their fingers on their eyes. And because everyone in Hong Kong's got almond eyes, she yeah. didn't even know what that meant. No, no. It seemed odd. <laughs> so it was, um, so yeah, so I, I didn't come across a lot of it um, at all. I didn't. And if I did come across anything, I would certainly pull that one person to one side and say, that's really offensive. 
and tell them why. Yeah. And hopefully they then go on to tell someone else that it's offensive and they don't say it again. Yeah. And that was enough for me because we're all in that position, aren't we? You know, I think. Yeah, we, and I think we've we've we're a similar age. You're you're a bit younger than me, but we've we've come up in a different a different culture. It's interesting now because we're coming up to Christmas and um, Christmas for us was Malcolm and Wise and the two Ronnies. I'm not sure what it was like <laughs> working in, a, in, in yeah. your dad's restaurant at that time, but but that's how we were. And the humour was puerile, but it was safe family humour. And yes, of course, people would be offended by some of that humour now. Um, I'm not sure that they went out of their way to be offensive. But the interesting term now is where you've got some musical groups, you know, like the drill and all that sort of stuff, where they glorify violence and that seemed to be okay. And I can't come to terms with the paradox in the in the two forms of entertainment. But I, I'm glad you said that because, as I said to you earlier on before we started, if I thought that I had been party to anything that offended anybody, I'm a nothingist. Mrs Maleri will tell you I'm not allowed to be, a, you know, I'm not allowed to have an opinion certainly not allowed to be offensive because that's not, you know, I'm strong-willed and I would deal with things, but I would never go out of my way to, to be offensive somewhere. So I'm really I'm really pleased you said that. What was the highlight working on, on the CID, apart from working with great people, of course, but what, what was the um, highlight working on CID? Oh, I loved all of it. I loved the fact that I was given a challenge every time a job came in. You know, I, I love digging. I mean, if people who are on CID now don't like digging, then they're in the wrong job, aren't they? Yeah, of course. Um, I remember going into a petrol station one day and coming out and bumping into a young probationer, and this was, you know, 10 years ago, and he was saying, oh, I was in here, you know, last week and there was a robbery and I'd just got my milk and gone and the robbery happened. Thank God I'd got my milk and gone. And I thought, <laughs> eh? Uh, are we in the same been. job? <laughs> are we in this? How often does that happen? I oh, know. But it was about putting all the puzzle pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. And later on in my career when I think there was – it. People joke in the job about me and they go, oh, she don't stay around for long. I did, I did you know, I, I was on at CRD for a long time. But if something, if I became a little bit demotivated, because let's face it, we see some rubbish, mm. then I just moved teams or I just moved on to a little bit, something else that would challenge me again. And it would then see me through another couple of years. And because you, you'd hear people going, oh, I've only got 10 years left. Oh, no. And they're wasting their life away. It's the only job where you, when you walk up to somebody and they say, how long have you got yeah. left? It's the only job. And what you actually did, and I wish I'd have done it earlier, was the right thing because what happens is you become complacent in your role yeah. and you become very proficient in your role. But because you haven't been challenged, whether that's from an educational perspective or a new dynamic in the way that you're investigating something, because you haven't had that challenge, you become demotivated and you don't realise you're de demotivated and then you start to moan about how bad it is. Yeah. And the only person who can change how bad it is is the person who becomes demotivated. I mean, I remember the first week, actually, at Braintree where I was given my uniform and it was all fresh and I walked in the station, some of the officers that have just retired actually were there moaning. Oh, bloody job. And it was in the times when we had the Brightland Sea going on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, they were all tired and moaning and I was listening. And yeah, thinking, they were earning oh, a fortune God, yeah. as well. Oh, it's bloody job. And they were all moaning. But that hasn't changed, has it? I mean, I I speak to some young coppers now who have joined their total different breed, but 
they're moaning. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, that's, that's how it is. That's and how unfortunately, it is. and I used to say to people, just go and do your job. You're getting paid for it quite handsomely and go home and enjoy life. Yeah. And I took that attitude. And I think after my husband, my first husband died, I sort of took that attitude on, really. I thought, do you know what? Life is over in a second oh, and yeah, I'm struggling here. And I remember, you know, I've got to, I'd go in, do all my work, sit tight and I'd clock watch and think, right, it's five to five. I've, I've got to get out of here to pick my son up because there was nobody else to do that at no. the time. Um, but I'd be back in early in the morning. He'd be off at school and da, da, da. And it went on like that. And the struggles, they were hard. But I kept thinking, it'll get better. He's going to get older. I've only had one son. And they do. They, they do get better. But nowadays, I mean, I remember you could, you could take time off and go and breastfeed if you want. Yeah. That was unheard of. I know. But I was a real grump when it came to other pregnant women. <laughs> I, th- I became really, I thought, this can't be possible. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and wrongly or rightly, I just think, oh, God's sake, if you, this is the job. It's, you know, nights, lates and earlies. If you can't do that. I, I had, and I had somebody, when I was at, at the DCI over at Harlow, I had somebody apply for a flexible working pattern so that they could fit in with their family life, which was fine, but their flexible working pattern was Monday to Friday. Nine till five, and I and I was told that I wasn't allowed to take into account the husband because the husband was in the job. And I said, okay, well let's balance this up because you can do some shifts and your husband can do the others. And um, the federation person, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I won, but it it wasn't about me winning. It was about doing the right thing for the job. And it's not because I'm unsympathetic. I'm a dad. I've got two boys. You know, I'm a grandfather. But it just. The pendulum needs to come back to needs to be in the middle because when you were there, it was one way, completely the other way. Now yeah. it's completely the other. And I, do you know what? I don't blame anybody for not taking advantage of it, but utilizing what is available to them. I don't mm. blame any. But what I do do is I blame the system for allowing it to go that far. But that that's how how it was. So you're at Braintree CID. Braintree CID, um, and I worked there for a long time with yourself and various yeah. other people. Um, my brother, I don't know if you remember my brother, who came a uh, custody attendant. Yes, that's right, there. yeah, yeah. He was hilarious, he was funny. And I always remember my DI at the time saying, to, I'd gone down to see him one morning and he'd always wanted to be a policeman, but he'd got pins in his shoulders right. and cruciate ligament injuries and he just couldn't, do it. there was no, no way he was going to get through that. And so he became a jailer. And um, so he'd never gone through the training of a police officer so I used to have to shush him sometimes (laughs) we knew exactly who we were we weren't afraid of I mean you remember in the days where you'd have the pink sheet oh yeah so he'd go down to the cell and he'd get all these abuse from prisoners which went straight over his head and he'd come back and he wrote on the custody sheet you know went down to the cell um DP you know detained person person as well (laughs) and he put underneath there Detained person called me a fat C-U-N-T. And he's written it on the pink sheet. (laughs) So I says to him, and then underneath, he's put, cheeky bastard, I thought I'd lost three pounds this week. Oh, (laughs) no. I'll never forget this because I remember the inspector coming down and reading it. Obviously, it was funny. I thought it was hilarious. He said, well, you tell me I've got to write every conversation down. down. (laughs) 
And he said, bloody <coughs> cheeky bastard, I lost three pounds. But he wasn't offended by it at all because no. he knows he was dealing with. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. And, he, you know, he's let somebody go out for a cigarette in the yard and the, the, he was a heroin addict, actually. Skinny, skinny little thing. And he said, I'm not coming back in. And my brother just said, you are. Picks him up. Under his arm, puts him back in the cell, and obviously told you can't be physical. And he goes, Well, he won't come back in. So, in the end, he said, You know what? I, I can't be this person that I don't want to be. And no. so, he, those are his experience. We were in the same station, yeah. but we, him and I thought this was hilarious. Yeah. We didn't even think anything of it. But don't you think now that society are, they're looking to be offended? There are yeah. some sections of society. And, and that's all sections, you know, irrespective of race, creed or colour. People just want to be offended so that they can say that they've been offended. Yeah. And, and that's a really sad indictment. So where did you go to? You, you, you've so, done, um, done Braintree CID. I did where Braintree CID and then I did Houston and Whitham. Um, and then I decided I was going to go to uh, the Fraud Squad in the City of London. So I left Essex, went there. With the lovely Ben Flanagan. Yeah, he was on my team actually before and he, he went there and I worked in his team and actually I got to City of London Fraud Squad and the whole teams were made up of county forces. County forces, yeah. Um, it was an odd force to work for, for me. Um, I was so used to not having much in Essex, as in, you know, you're going to go and sit in a van for three hours um, and when you work for the city, you're staying in the Marriott. Yeah. You know, it was very different. And the team I worked with, I, you know, I'd got... I, I remember going in one day and there was this cordon up. I thought, oh, something exciting's happened. I mean, because it was early 2000, so not much happened in the city at the, you know, weekend. And um, got into work and I said, oh, what's, what's happening? And they go, there's been a shooting. Trident. Oh, right. Barbican. What, two miles away? Why are we cordoning up Liverpool Street Station? It was very strange. So we sat in this meeting, there was probably four sergeants, a DI, a DCI and me, and I thought, are we investigating one job here? Or It was odd, it was just odd. And Trident is um, black and black shooting. Yeah, it was the black and black shootings, you know, the gangs. Uh, and fortunately the girl survived, it was a, a bullet had hit the metal in her bra. Wow. Yeah, um, but it was miles away. Yeah. So... I remember thinking, yeah, very different. You know, I'd got a sergeant who worked with me who hadn't ever investigated a rape and he'd been in the police 17 years. So mm. they had different crimes to deal with. Um, I stayed there for a little while and I thought, you know, I, I, I just don't, I feel I'm missing home. I really was missing home and I meant that by county force. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, they police very differently. Um, and I knew a few people in Essex. I thought, you know, I did, I did a couple of years there and... I decided to come back to Essex. So I phoned up headquarters and they, and they literally said to me, where do you want to go? I said, oh, can I cut, come straight back? Yes, you can. Where do you want to go? Um, there were a few options, but Stansted was one of them. I thought, I'm not going to Basildon because I live north of the county. I'll go to Stansted. So I'll go to Stansted. I'm a DC there for a couple of years. It was okay. Um, I think your brother was there at the time, maybe on firearms. Um, Pleasant place to work. Everyone's going on holiday. They're all happy. Everyone's happy. But all the crime is fraudy and, you know, a little bit. Yeah. There's a little bit of, you know, things going on because um, I think at one time there was Braintree sort of did a bit with them. Well, yeah, because it was in, it was, Stancer's in a funny place. Cause yeah. it, I mean, it's got its own, it's got its own command team and what have you, but 
because of its geographical location, it, it found itself linking in with Braintree because it's straight down the A120. Mm. So, yeah, I joined the CID team. It was a small team. I mean, even then I thought, I remember some getting a phone call and they're saying, oh, because there's only three cells there, um, this van's pulled into Ryanair, which is on the other side of the airport, and take stolen 60 trolleys, you know, the air host trolleys. And some of the guys in the office, they'd been there, they were on their way out now, yeah, yeah. you know, four weeks to retirement yeah. or something like that. So they couldn't be bothered with anything like that. They, they just want to go. And there's me thinking, well, they can't get very far with 60 bloody trolleys, can they? Aluminium trolleys yeah. are worth a lot of money. And, you know, you're inside here for a long time and I'm sitting there and they're not answering this call. And I said, well, I bloody am. So I phoned up the scrap dealer in Colchester. So she's got 60 trolleys there from Ryanair. Uh, yeah. And I could hear these officers going... She's only gone and found them. Well, it took a phone call, didn't it? Where are they going to put? <laughs> where are they going to put these sixty trolleys? What would you do if you had them? You'd go and melt them down. So we end up getting them back, and it was jobs like that. Yeah. Um, you know, some silly jobs. Some I remember. Were you there for any of the hijackings? Yeah, I was. Uh, the strange thing is, when you're a DC at Stansted, you have to go. This was when El Al. The yeah. Do you remember them? Yeah, we used to have, we used to, have to do the armed, armed support yeah. around the flight. So and DC had to go in the tower every Thursday. Wow. Which was an experience, yeah. sitting up there with them. Um, every Thursday when the airline flight comes in, the whole airport's cordoned off and you get this little brief and it tells you what to say if a high, an aeroplane's hijacked. And you say, I'm the police officer. They literally hand it over to you, the air traffic control. Right, police officer, this is airline. Flight, they're talking to you. So I'm read, you know, you have to read out the thing to the pilot. So we were just sent, they all come in. So I, and there's a new girl who joined my team. Um, I can't remember her name now, but she was a sergeant from the Met. Right. And she joins our team. So I've done my Thursday stint in the tower, go home, next day's hers, and the next day, bugger me, they're hijacked. No way. And she's like, Oh, my God, I'm, she's up in the tower and she's having to read this thing. And I can't remember what the airline was. It was I'm sure it came from Greece. Um, I know there's, we've had the Sudanese. I can't remember. The, the, it was probably the last one. Yeah, I can't remember what that was now. Yeah, so, um, but I had been involved in the one before that, but as a uniform officer, right. when I'd gone up there to guard the gate and worked with the SAS, or not worked with yeah, the yeah, company, yeah. and being in total awe of them. Yeah. They're and different. Kate AD was there. Oh, really? Yeah. And, you know, she puts her thing up and she turns night into day so she can see the camera. And I remember being there with an officer and we're standing there trying to get in camera shot because, <laughs> you know, this is Kate AD. Um, and the SAS turning up in their twos and being really impressed with them. Yeah, they are different. I've got some friends who are, who are from Hereford and. Um, oh, do you know what? They're they, different breed. Yeah, they are. They really are. And I think I spent my whole life being in awe of that type of policing. Mm. Really did. They were so impressive. Um, so I was on CRD for a little while. And then I went to a job in the airport where um, this the, British Airways had called us, and it's six o'clock. And they say, can you, um, you know, we've got thefts and all the rest of it. Oh, sorry. And um, I, I got into a bit of a confrontation with somebody. I was in suit, yeah, which made me feel a little bit nervous and uncomfortable. And I thought, I don't like this. I'm never like this. And I got back to my office and um, I thought, I've got to do something about this. I can't be this officer that's scared of confrontation. I've never been scared of it. No. So I walked around the corner, around the block into the DI's office and said, can I do my firearms 
uh, assessment. He, and he looked at me and he said, you serious? I said, yeah, why not? Do you think I could do it? And he said, yeah, if you want to. Well, they were desperate for females. Of course they want you. Off you go. So I go down to, booked it in, and it looked fun. You know, you see them all walking around. I've never picked a gun up in my life. So I go down to headquarters, do my assessment, and I'll never forget the day that the sergeant at the time calls us all in. And at this time, I've got a suit on, and my nails are all manicured. And I'm sitting there, and he stands up in front of the 20 of us who are about to do this assessment. We don't know how to do it, what to do, or anything. And he said, I don't care how big your biceps are. If you mess up, you're out. And because there was a lot of young lads there, they've got these T-shirts on, they're really tight around their arms. And I'm sat there thinking, shit, I've got long nails. So he gives us a time of, I think I happen to be one of the last ones. I go straight over to the office and get these biggest parasites and I've cut these nails down. Cut them all down. I'm not letting anything... Get between you and and this. There's no way. So I'm cutting them off. Anyway, do the assessment, and I have to say it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, And then you get called in, don't you? And there was only nine female AFOs at this time. And And that's right across the county. Right across, yeah. 3,000-plus police officers. And I think firearms was the hardest training I've ever done in my life, to be honest. Um, So I got through the assessment, which is tough in itself, Mm. but I think your instinct, and I always say this for females because... Most females, you walk into a room, if somebody's in there, you're very edgy. You're not going to go barging in. You're going to peep because I don't want to be attacked by a man or anybody, but a man especially. Self-preservation. Yeah, the strength in me. Um, so I got into that and then I went off and did the course and that was tough. 12 weeks of hell. Where did you have to go? Uh, we went all over the place. Um, I can't remember where we stayed now, uh, where we stayed for the month, but I do remember halfway through phoning my husband and saying, I don't know if I can do this. And him saying to me, you've come so far. Yeah. Oh, all right, okay. Because you'd think you, uh, you'd had a great day and then you'd get told, it, what the hell was that mm. type of thing. And, so, and quite rightly. Sometimes. But I'd never held a gun in my life. I was brought up with Cindy dolls. I don't want to play cowboys and Indians. I don't want to roll around in the mud. So I found that a challenge to have to suddenly become almost gung-ho, which I'm not. Mm. But having said that, got through it. And at the end of it, there's nothing better feeling than, than the sergeant then saying to you, congratulations, you've got your permit. Um, but I'd already had gossip in the ears. Of course, she's got a permit. She's got two tickets already. And I spoke to the sergeant about that because the fear inside me was thinking, you're not giving me this permit for that. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I've heard some talk outside mm. that I'm getting a ticket because one, I'm female, one, I'm ethnic minority in the police. Don't be so ridiculous. You've earned this remerit. Fine. Just needed to know that. I mean, I don't know why I questioned him, to be honest, because I'm sure that But that reassurance is sometimes, you, you know, you just want that reassurance. And, and to be fair... They're not going to say to you, well, yeah, actually, Karen, we are going to choose you for the, those reasons. Of course not. They're not, not. going to do that. And I don't ever think that was no. ever going to be a case. But, you know, it was gossip. and. But you wouldn't pass that if you weren't capable of carrying a firearm because the life and death situations that you get involved in as a, an AFO, you know, it's, it's incredible and... Nobody would thank you if something went horribly wrong. No, exactly. 
And we, I mean, I was stationed at Stansted and so it was me and a, a 12 on a team. So there's one female officer on each team. And I got on with the team, I have to say, really, really well. It helps me learn all about men inside and out. And I was like, the female, and it's funny. And you ta- you teach them lots about women, yeah, to be honest, because they can answer you. Uh, they'll ask you stuff. And, and they were, I think police officers in general are one of the best people I've ever met in my life. I think they're just yeah, great people. They're so broad in everything. Yeah. They're, they're very deep. They can be. Yeah. They hide an awful lot if they can, as in about their personal self. But walking around the airport and talking to people going on holiday was lovely. And we'd go for the tests every month where you had to, you know, get your 50 bullets and it used to infuriate them because I say, right, I'm sure I need to get set in the target. They go 40. I said, right, I'll get 41 then. And they'd say to me, why can't you try and get 50, Nicolau? Because I don't need 50. I need 41. Everything else is wasted yeah. effort. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened all the time. And they used to, because they're not going to drop one, you know, and it's like, why would you? You don't need to do that. Great people. Yeah. Um... And then after a little while, I, the, the training, is it was just a lot for me. I found every month I've got to now roll around the floor and be this person that I naturally wasn't. I mean, in in the airport, I don't know, for people who listen, they send out a car county, don't they? Yeah. So I go on county car one day um, and I go out with another officer and he said to me all the way there, I've never heard you be so quiet. I said, because in my head, I potentially could now shoot with someone. We're going to a, a live job. Yeah. And I, I'd, got, I'd got an MP5 at that time, and I think that's the only time ever I've had to raise a gun to somebody with the red dot to keep them where they are while they're being searched, da-da-da-da. And afterwards I questioned myself, would I have shot? And I think I would have. Yeah. I definitely would have. And people say, would you have shot someone? Yeah. If it meant but saving me, my for. colleague, yeah. or anyone else, I would have shot. Yeah, absolutely. So, that's the one and only time I've ever had to do that. But yeah, no, I was much, pre- I was prepared to do that. And how long did you serve on firearms? Two years. And then um, I phoned, I bumped into one of the sergeants at headquarters actually, walking around, and he said to me, Can you come and become a crime trainer at the college? And I thought, Oh, shall I? Shan't I? At the time, we were doing 12 hour shifts nonstop. And I thought, Yeah, I'll do it for a couple of years. So I did that. Moved to the college. Taught crime for a couple of years. Um, soon got fed up with that, though. It's hard teaching people, isn't it? It is hard. I, I wouldn't oh, be a good teacher. Do you know, it's hard. Hard because I think some people are shocked what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> in that I'm not going to wipe your backside. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll try and teach you, but if you don't want to learn, then I'm not going to. I'm not going to spoon feed you. Yeah, and I remember the. Um, probationer trainers calling me and saying, can you come and just introduce yourself to the class? You're, they're going to be your class next week. And actually the probationers loved the crime week. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, and I went and sat in this class and I looked around and I thought, what the hell? And the trainers at the time were not officers. And they said, well, this is DC Nicola. In fact, I was, it was acting DS then. She's going to be your trainer for next week. And I said, it's nice to meet you all. I only have two rules. Turn up at my class late. Don't bother coming in the door. Your phones go on silent and down on the floor and you put your ties on. That's all I said to them. I could not stand what I was seeing. No. And they were rolling in 20 minutes later. Who do you think you are? Your trainer's here. You know, it was that sort of thing. So there was a lot of that. Um, Take, you know, that little thing on your shirt. It's not for you to hang your tie on. This is a uniform job. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, the old radio so, clips. Yeah. Yeah. And they swan around with it. You know, it's all this sort they of thing. They became old legs before <sighs> they... Yeah, it was... Yeah, or old sweats, I should say, before they they had a right to become old sweats. Yeah, and I, I found it all a little bit, you know, because I was sort of working for the department where you'd have other trainers come up to you, not police officers. Um, have you got a minute, Sarge? Yeah, it's the problem. Yeah, we've got 23 students in today. Okay. There's 26 chairs in the classroom. I'm not sure what you're asking me. Well, we've got too many chairs. Take them out then. Oh, we're not allowed to just take... Yeah, you just take them out. Do you know what I mean? So there was a lot of that. And so I became quite... I got fed up with it very easy. Because I can't can't just keep holding your hand. And they're so... That's a bit rude. It's not, is it? It's common sense. Mm. Take the three chairs out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah, but they don't want to use common sense and then there'll, there'll be some other reason why they can't do it. Yeah. So then I um, thought I'm going back on division. Um, I, I Having said that, I, I did enjoy it. I was able to say to probationers who were really gutsy, you know, learn, your, learn who these people are you're dealing with. Not everything's black and white. You know, you see people that you'll be arresting and you get fed up with them and... Learn where they come from. Learn and understand why they behave like they do. And you'll be a much better police officer. Yeah. And I truly believe that. You know, they're not privileged. They may have come from somewhere that the only thing they can do is steal because they can't eat. You know, they're, yeah, absolutely. They're, you, you need to learn that. Because I think they have this tunnel vision sometimes. Um, Judgmental. Yeah. And, it's, um, yeah. and I, I think lots of people do it. But actually, read somebody's history. See where they come from. You know, it's... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like No, I absolutely do. We're not condoning their crimes, but get where, why they do it. But I always remember, and he's dead now, Kevin Hugh McLeod. And, um, I remember him, actually. Remember him, but but, but the, the reason his life was formed around heroin and it was his family life that had dragged him into mm-hmm. it, the criminality that was wrapped around him. And there's families across Essex, across the country. And I've got... I'm not saying sympathy, but if you look at some of these people, you can understand why they do what they do, and we're going to see more of that because as the um, financial crisis hits across the UK, we're going to have more people taking risk around thefts, Mm. shop thefts, all those types of things to try and earn more money, you know, whether it be dealing drugs or whatever. You'll have more of a clandestine market around certain areas. But you need to understand you can't judge somebody as to why they've committed a crime. Some, no. some you can. It's, but the, the social crime, because of their abject poverty, we're not here to be, we're not, we, they're not there to judge people. No. Because we are lucky. Yeah, we are. And, you know, they're, some people are just not born into a great life, are they? And, no, you not. know, it's not, it's not as black and white as everyone thinks it is. And I think if young officers remember that, they will yeah. definitely, definitely be better coppers. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they have to look at their own background and their own up, up, you know, upbringing. And, you know, your testament to not having your own mum around. Yeah. You know, and, and the, but the fact is that you've gone on and you've, you've been successful. So how long did you serve in the end with Essex Police? Or, I did or, seven, or just police? under 18 years. Right. Um, I ended up back in Colchester on the domestic violence unit uh, for a couple of years before I resigned. Um, I, I'd always had it in my mind I was going to resign, but 
it, I just wasn't quite ready. And every yeah. year I wasn't quite ready because I absolutely loved what I did. Yeah. But I was getting older and I thought, do you know what, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. Um, I The salon, which I own now, um, I literally walked in here one day and said to the woman, I really like your salon. Is it up for sale? Um, I used it. And I thought I was a tattooist. I trained as a tattooist. Were you still in the police at this yeah. point? You were. Um, and I trained as a tattooist as a hobby. And uh, me and my husband bought, created a tattoo shop with some other tattoos. And I thought, I'm going to do that full time. Classic um, tattoos. Yeah, classic body tattoos. And um, so I, I came in, she said, oh, I've just sold it. And I said, oh, that's a shame. Well, here's my number. Because things fall through, don't they? This place here. Yeah, this so place aspects here. Of, let's, let's put it, Aspects of Beauty is a fantastic... It's wasted on somebody like me. I've got, <laughs> I've got a face for radio, but they've got everything here, you know. And so you've walked into us. So I walked in and gave them my number and everything, and said, "Look, if it, if it falls through, um, my husband's my I'd, I'd remarried by then, and yeah. my husband's got a restaurant um, down the road. And if yeah. you're interested in selling, great restaurant as well." Um, and she phoned me up six months later and said, "Are you still interested? Because I don't like the girl I've sold it to, and I'd like to sell it to you." Bizarre. Mm, so I bought it, didn't work here, um, with the plan that I was going to then retire. So you were in the police, so you had a business. Still in the police, yeah. Applied because for a business it, interest in yeah, the police. In the beginning, I remember years ago when I first joined the police, it, I had to declare the restaurant. Yeah, Because you weren't allowed, right? No, that's right. Um, and I wasn't married then, so it didn't really matter. But, yeah, you weren't allowed to do anything like that. But now, and and... It had no conflict with policing. No, no. So, um, yeah, so I declared it and then um, I carried on working and um, more and more I was drawn here because the business was running and I was just coming in to check it. And I thought, what do I know about beauty? I know nothing about beauty. How am I going to run a salon? Other than the fact that you won the prestigious (laughs) Cathay Pacific 1984 pageant. But I went back, yeah, but I didn't know anything about beauty treatments. And I went back to work on the Monday and I said to my sergeant, I'll work every weekend for the next year if you let me have Monday and Tuesday off. And they said, okay. So I went to college. So on a Monday and Tuesday, I went to college in Brentwood and did a beauty course in preparation to take this salon on. And I didn't have a day off for a year. Karen. I know. But it was pleasant. I mean, God, you know, you walked in and I'll, I'll never remember walking in there and, I, and the teacher goes, now, girls, you can imagine where I've just come from. You treat your nails like jewels and not tools. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and I go back into work the next day into CID and I said, girls, you treat your nails like t- jewels and not tools. And they all just looked at Started me. Started laughing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I got to. So I had the I had the salon for about nine months right. um, before I thought right now's the time. Um, I gave him my notice, came out, and I thought, what have I done? I I, I found I really struggled working in this industry after it took me about three years to get did used. It really? Yeah, it did. Um, I still feel like a cop now, Paul. And I don't think that will ever go. No. Good. And I don't want it to, to be honest. I feel like it in my head. But you'll know when somebody walks in by instinct whether they're right or wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, the old saying, once a cop, always mm. a cop. I think it's actually right. Yeah, it is. You absolutely. Just, how can you get rid of that in your head? It's formed part of, you yeah, know, tw- nearly 20 life. years that's of your life. Um, yeah, so I took the salon on and learned all the things. The girls here work for me now. At one time I had 10 of them. There's only 
five of us now, um, and they taught me things that I didn't know. Business side of it was easy for me, as I think would be for most police officers. They're very good at organising things. They're very good at the minute detail. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've had a few coppers come and you know, friends of mine come and I'd say, I want to do this, what would you advise? Or I, I don't want to be a policeman. And I think, do you know how many skills you've got? Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? You've got so many skills that what we call a civvy life is easy. Yeah, it is. It is easy. You can do it with your eyes closed because you're so used to dealing with this. But I think, and and we spoke about this earlier on, I think if you've got the courage to do this, mm. I, if I knew then what I know now, I would have set my own business up. But I didn't have the policing background to set my own business up. I, it's only after I left the police I realised actually I'd got all these skills, albeit yeah. I'd already made the plans. But... But you're absolutely right. and But I think a lot of coppers become institutionalised and mm. they keep their eye on the pension prize, yeah. which is now gone. In, yeah, in real yeah. terms, it's yeah. now gone. So we are seeing more people come to us for work. You know, we've got people all over the world that are working and we see more entrepreneurs that are taking the chance because the police service will have them back. As long as they've got a... A good background, yeah. So, but but you're absolutely right. It's it's about utilizing the skills that we've gained over those years. To be honest with you, when my first husband died, I came out of the pension scheme because I Did you? I couldn't afford to pay four hundred pound to a childminder, and in this, my starting salary in the police then was thirteen thousand pound. Can yeah. you believe that? But I had this choice. I thought I need to be part of society. I love my job. I'm staying in. I'll come out of the pension. So I was never tired by the pension. However. Even today, my mindset was, I'm a smart girl, I've got a brain, I'm abled body, what's the worst that can go wrong? And that's, I have that all through my life. I'll go and get a job. Yeah. You know, it's with my salon today, I was closed for a year. I expanded in 2018, so I've expanded the salon, took, gone into two buildings. Um, my husband and I run the restaurant, obviously, and we've got the tattoo. So between us, we've got four businesses that were closed for a year. Yeah. Um and he said he got a bit fretful. And I said, We're smart people. When we started these, we were in our twenties with kids. We're now in our fifties with a brain yeah. and all this knowledge. So we just go and find work. Yeah, exactly. And I think if people thought more like that, if you're alive and kicking, what are you afraid of? But you wouldn't have to find work because the fact is you're going to succeed. And, and I, I was telling you earlier on, when we go quiet, I go into a bit of a panic mode. It's like, oh, no. But the boss says, well, do you know what? This is all going to work. Yeah. This is all because we've got it to a point where it will work. Yeah. Because you're a credible brand, we're a credible brand, and people like the likes of you and I because of our reliability, our customer yeah. focus, and we're quite demanding on the people that work around us but we're also forgiving. We make sure that they have a great time working for us. Yeah. But we, you know, we have got exacting standards, and and you're exactly the same. And I admire you because when I started doing this, I've got I've got had a wish list, and I will thank you because I had a wish list of people I wanted to speak to, and you were on that top part of the list because, <laughs> yeah. But you know what? You've you've done remarkable things. You've got fantastic businesses running. Um, and you stuck through it. And if you didn't, you know, we said earlier on, if you don't like the heat in the kitchen, you get out. And if it's something that you, if, if you've done it all, the bits that you want to do in the police, then go and do something else. Yeah, exactly If that's working that. for yourself or working for someone else, go and do it. I've never needed a safety net. And 
because I think, do you know what? I, I can just, I'll find a job. I don't care if I needed the money to. You know, you know, look at my dad. He came from a place he didn't speak a language. He got chucked into a country where he knew nothing yeah. and had to survive. And lots of people do that. So when people say to me, oh, what do I know? You know bloody loads. Yeah. Even if you've been a copper for God knows how long, you know loads. And your 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 work ethics, what you have to do at a drop of a hat, you know, all the inconvenience that we go through as cops, you do that. It's in you. So doing anything else is simple. And the thing is, and I, and I will say this, we, we meet wonderful people. Yeah, we do. A, a, along the journey. And... Your, your true friends, the people that turn out to the M25, you know, you, you can count on one hand, but the amount of associates that you make through networking, if you've got that ability to use your brain and your tongue at the right in the right level, your network that you can build within the police that you can take with you once you've gone is absolutely enormous. Yeah. But we had a mutual friend, Dillis, who I remember when she worked for you, she was working yeah, in a restaurant, wasn't she? she? I mean, was, yeah. And God bless her. I mean, she passed away... Oh, eight oh, years ago. Eight years ago. And if I hadn't been in the police, I wouldn't have met Dillis's, I yeah. wouldn't have met Karen's. You know, it's just... I think that I've been blessed with the with the great people that I've met. Anyway, um, Karen, before we conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add or to take away? No, thank you. No, letting me um, speak. I, I, I say these things and I think, bloody hell, woman, you've done a bit. You have. You <laughs> but said- it's only when you say it out loud, I suppose, because I think what you think is norm is not norm. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And what is normal? What, joining the police service could be seen as being abnormal, yeah. but but what is normal? But Karen, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. I wish I'm you... enjoying your podcast, by the way. Uh, I've been listening to the other Oh, have you? Thank Yeah, you. I have. Very nice. Well, um, is there anyone you'd like me to reach out with? Because I'll, I'll be tagging this, and I know that you listen to the CEO. I do, Diary of the CEO, because he's great. Yeah. But, no, I'll have a think about it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll tag him into this. And um, But thank you. Merry Christmas to you and your thank family. You. I hope it's a, a peaceful time for you, and I hope that the restaurant's particularly busy, which it will be. Yeah, it will be. And um, take care. Thank you. Thank you.